Francis Weller, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be back. Our subject today is beauty, imagination, and the life of the soul. You're a psychotherapist, a writer. Uh, you call yourself a soul activist who uh, has developed a style you call soul-centered psychotherapy, synthesizing diverse streams of thought from psychology, anthropology, mythology, alchemy, indigenous cultures, and poetic traditions. You've written a really beautiful book called Entering the Healing Ground, Grief, Ritual, and the Soul of the World, which talks about creating pathways to reclaiming our indigenous soul, finding the unforgotten, the unforgotten wisdom that resides in the heart of the psyche. You and your partner Judith Weller founded Wisdom Bridge in Northern California that offers educational programs in these areas. And you're just about to publish a new book called A Trail on the Ground, Tracking the Ways of Our Indigenous Soul. And I'd just like to start by reading a paragraph from your work um, that I think uh, is perhaps a starting point. Carried privately, sorrow lingers in the soul, slowly pulling us below the surface of life and into the terrain of death. Learning to hold sorrow and loss close to our hearts is a deep spiritual practice a fierce and unflinching acknowledgement of the way of the world. This spiritual practice is a tempering of the soul, a gradual deepening that moves us closer to the earth into an intimacy with our surroundings where we lean into those we love. So, sorrow and its relationship to soul in archetypal psychology. That's a very fundamental linkage. Yes? Inescapable linkage. Yeah. I mean, if we want to talk about soul, um, you have to be willing to talk about depth. Mm -hmm. And the direction of soul takes us down below the surface of things. And one of the things we encounter in that below the surface world is sorrow, mm -hmm. death, mm -hmm. loss. Mm -hmm. It's what I call the commons of the soul. And these are the things that every one of us share. No one in this lifetime will escape those realities. The part of the problem is, is that very few of us are granted the permission and the community within which to carry that experience. So as you that first line there, when we carry this privately, it ends up creating a condition of oppression. Most of the people who come to see me in my practice come in with a, an objective complaint of depression, but it's really oppression. What they're really feeling is the weight of undigested sorrow that has been gathering for decades, pushing us down to the ground. When we did the grief ritual here a few weeks ago, uh, I told them on Friday night that grief has tremendous vitality in it. And there was this feeling of skepticism in the room. Like, are you sure about that? It feels deadening. It feels straining. But by the time we were halfway through the ritual on Sunday afternoon, 
the dancing began. And the dancing was so alive and so vital that when we got finished with the ritual, I said, now do you believe me? It is the, again, it's the weight of that sorrow that really uh, pushes us actually into a static state when the dancing stops. And it's when we can really release it that the dancing returns. And we are meant to be a dance. We are meant to be a rhythm, a pulse, a poem, not a thing, not a static thing stuck in the, in the world. It seems to me the other shore of loss is love. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, 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 the, uh, it's the prayer of life. Huh? If we're going to love, we have to welcome loss. They are inseparable. And to accept, to be willing to enter into love is to be willing to enter into the rights of loss. And they, love is such a daring thing to do. It is the riskiest thing we do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's messy. Mm-hmm. My mentor, Bob Stein, um, who had a place up here in Inverness, and I got to work with him for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. He, uh, he keeps saying to me, you know, Intimacy is wounding. Get over it. You know? Wounding. If you're going to be in an intimate relationship, you're going to hurt. And we like sanitized things. We like, you know, the, the uh, Hollywood version where there's no bruising and no, you know, no loss. But I would really doubt the, the, uh, the veracity and the robustness of that love. And so deeply connected to love and to the soul is the topic of our, at least the topic we gave the day. Right. We're, we see this as jazz, basically, uh, this conversation, so we'll go all over. But the topic we gave the day mm-hmm. was beauty, imagination, and the life of the soul. And, of course, deeply connected to love is beauty and imagination. The only way we could really enter into love is through the allure of beauty. I mean, isn't that what beauty does? Uh, Brian Swim, a wonderful uh, cosmologist, said that one of the principal elements of the cosmos is allurement. And that's what the ancient Greeks said too, right? Aphrodite, one of her primary qualities was allure. We are drawn into the world through beauty. We fall into love through beauty. And without beauty, we remain disconnected and in some ways disembodied. And we end up uh, feeling as if we are spectators rather than deep participants in the world. This culture has somehow distorted beauty into a commodity and has turned it into beauty products and uh, trying to be uh, trying to present an image that we will find approvable to the world. But the beauty I'm talking about here is very different. Beauty, as I'm speaking to it here, is about our capacity to be penetrated by the world so that we're actually touched. Um, in Greek language, they would talk about having an aesthetic moment. An aesthetic comes from their word aesthesis. And aesthesis is that moment when you are out walking and you come around the bend and something <gasps> takes your breath away. That's aesthesis. Aesthesis is being grabbed by the world, being touched 
so deeply that it takes your breath away. <gasps> now, we want aesthetic moments. We want to have that time where we are touched so deeply. But we are really caught in, I was telling Michael over lunch, the two primary sins in this culture are amnesia and anesthesia. We forget and we go numb. And anesthesia, if you look at that word, it is uh, anesthetics, without beauty, without our capacity to respond. So if we're not having an aesthetic arrest, an aesthetic moment, we then are walking around numb to the world. And that's really when the world becomes uh, transmuted into thing, into object, where then clear cuts make sense because it's just bored feet. You know, and we can do whatever we do to the world when it becomes an object rather than a revelation. One of the uh, great figures in the field of archetypal psychology who, whose work you studied for many years uh, is James Hillman, um, really the founder of archetypal psychology as a formal field. Right. Although he said he didn't want to found anything and he didn't think of it as a field, but Nonetheless, in some sense, he founded a field. Although, and again, he brought it from Carl Jung and so on. But he sort of transformed Jung. Uh, and Thomas More was his great acolyte and, right. and has, has also contributed greatly. Um, and um, and in, uh, I, I would say in some sense that your work in archetypal psychology draws deeply on the vocabulary that Hillman and Moore created. But you've also taken it uh, beyond Hillman and Moore in many ways and, and made your own deeply original contribution. How do you see where you've taken archetypal psychology in your own work that goes beyond what you absorbed from Hillman and and That's a really good question. I think the primary uh, piece I've tried to bring into it is the activism piece. That uh, I think the soul wants to participate in the joys and sorrows of the world. So rather than a deeply interior process, which is amazing, I mean, archetypal psychology is stunning in its ability to really uh, reveal some of the inner workings of the soul. But the soul is not meant to be in just a strictly interior experience. It wants to fall out into the world. And so I think what I've really tried to do is bring community, uh, service, uh, participation, uh, and the whole practice of making the patient the world rather than the individual. Our planet is suffering. Our ecologies, our watersheds, uh, the salmon runs, these are the patients now. And we have to tend to our own individual psyches, not so much for our own redemption any longer, but because the, the, the greater cycle of life is, is greatly threatened, as we all know. Yes, I think so. I think that's a, a profound point where we should settle for a little bit here because um, that's what Commonwealth's about. It's about yeah, healing absolutely. ourselves and healing the earth. Yeah. 
So, some of you have heard me say this before, but I'll just do a little riff here. So, we're living in an age of extinctions, the sixth great spasm of extinctions in the history of the planet. Climate change, depleting the ozone layer, toxic chemicals, habitat destruction, invasive species. Uh, Then the the nuclear threat, um, and then the... uh, the, the new threats of biotechnology, nanotechnology, robotics. Um, uh, the, many people think, you know, the threat is climate change or something. But it's so much more profound than mm-hmm. that. It's this whole interlocking set of technologies. And even if we had the political will, we actually don't know how to find our way out of this process, which no one is in control of. No person, no corporation, no government. And we are all active participants, ineluctably active participants. As Pogo said, you remember, we met, we've met the enemy and he is us. You know, that we, are, we are active participants in something that we cannot control and that is profoundly degrading you know, our, our heritage. And so the grief that so many of us carry about this is just overwhelming. And the tendency uh, toward uh, amnesia and anesthesia uh, is really a, a fundamental defense mechanism so that people can get through their laws. Um, Joanna Macy has famously worked on this as an issue, and you've contributed to it. Um, So, how do you see, let's just start with the easier part of this, Um, let's not worry first about how we change the world, how how do you find that we as individuals can find our way into a relationship with this great grief that enables us to lead energized, joyful lives in the midst of the Holocaust of life? Simple question. (laughs) Simple compared to the question of how we get out of what's going on for the earth. I think it's essential that we break out of uh, one of the other most uh, damaging fictions, which is privatization and individualism. Mm -hmm. I think when we are condemned to turn our face into the wind of all of what you just named by ourselves, we cannot do it. Mm. We will immediately turn back towards amnesia and anesthesia as a relief, you know, as a, uh, a momentary gasp of air before we feel like we're sinking. So I think the most essential thing we can do is try to break our isolation. And that's part of what happens in the Commonwealth programs. So, but how does a listener listening to this uh, and wanting to find her or his way out of um, being deeply oppressed by this grief, what would you offer to them that they can do as they drive and listen in the car or as they, in their home or in their own community? What are the practical ways of breaking out of the oppression of grief? at what's happening to the earth. I think the most, again, most of us in our lifetime have been fortunate enough to form at least one or two friendships. Mm -hmm. 
I think we have to call our friends and say, I want to break a taboo. I want to talk about sorrow, which is one of the most you know, forbidden things in our culture to talk about, is to talk about grief, to talk about loss, to talk about what's actually happening. So if we can break the taboo of silence and say, let's come together on Friday night, the three of us, and I want to tell you, as Mary Oliver would say, tell me of despair yours, and I will tell you mine. And that's really such a foundational move that we stop trying to carry this privately. And if we can do that, if you can just begin, I mean, what I see over and over again is we're just waiting for permission. Someone please tell me it's okay to talk about this. You know? yeah. We don't want, I mean, someone was talking the other day, I, well, I didn't want to be a downer. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to bring everybody down by talking about this. Well, but then you're left with it. And the more we privatize this overwhelming grief, the more we, in a sense, withdraw from the world. Mm-hmm. And the world needs us to participate. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it can't tolerate more and more of us turning away from what is happening. And if we are not registered the sorrows of the world, who will? You know, it is up to us as mature men and mature women to turn our face into that wind and say, I will feel this. But then what we need secondarily are meaningful ways to set it down. And this is where I've learned so much from indigenous cultures. They have found, I mean, they've developed what I call a technology of belonging. So they know how to tend the everyday experiences of rupture and injury that we don't. We have, again, we go to private practice to deal with that. We go to see a therapist, which is great, you know, please keep coming. But, um, <laughs> but we need a much larger uh, resonating field to truly set it down. I mean, people in my practice, I tell almost everybody I work with, this is good preparatory work. But ultimately, to set this down, we have to do this communally. Because this is how the psyche evolved. We never did this privately. In our long story as a species, we never grieved privately. And so now we're being given this weight to do solitarily. And we can't. Partly because, as I write in the book, two things are required to set grief down, containment and release. And if you're being given both jobs, guess which one wins out? You become a perpetual container to your grief, and you can never set it down. So the psyche, the soul, is waiting for those circumstances in which there is enough holding space around you so that I can actually... My only job then is to release. And I've worked with many, many uh, environmental activists, political activists, and they're burnt out. And partly because they have been saturated with grief that has no place to go. And until they are able to set it down meaningfully, repetitiously, that's what they're going to do. And so often they fuel their work with anger. Yeah. And let's talk about that. I mean, how do you feel about um, environmental or social activism fueled by anger as a psychological strategy. I mean, I can see you could argue that it's a good one or argue that it's 
incomplete. How do you how do you see activism fueled by anger as a psychological strategy? I would hope more for outrage than anger. Hmm. Uh, Hillman once said that the sure sign of a soul awake is outrage. Because if a soul is really engaged uh, with the world, the sorrows of the world penetrate and you, and you register it. Now, if your soul is really quickened by that, what you will feel is outrage. What's the difference between anger and outrage? I don't really know. But there's something about outrage related, being connected to, to love. Yeah, I get that, actually. You know, that I'm outraged because of my deep affinity. You can be outraged without necessarily uh, expressing it entirely as anger, although there's a deep connection. Yeah. It's something can be completely outrageous to you, mm-hmm. and yet you need not respond with anger. You may respond with skillful means, Mm-hmm. To respond to the outrage without, because anger is not necessarily the only response to outrage. No, it's not. Yeah. Um, right. Again, woven in there is affection. Right. You know, I was thinking just coming back to private loss, because obviously for 28 years in the cancer help program, we've worked with people living with um, the grief of cancer. But I turned 70 this year, and, um, and so the experience of aging is coming ever more to my uh, consciousness. And, um, and I, I was thinking about, about that this morning, I mean, you know, and while I bear all these things with a lot of good humor uh, and find great joy in life, I haven't really given myself any kind of permission to grieve the gradual losses, you know. I mean, I actually, I love life, and I love what one grows into uh, at this age. But there's some part of me that has held back. I think the hardest thing for me, actually, is, is the, uh, the erosion of memory. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest part. When I, you know, I've never been good at either names or faces, but if I heard a theory that I loved, I could always keep the names of the people involved with the theory. And now I find I can't always reach the name of the person involved with the theory. I can still remember the theory, but um, it drives me nuts. We were talking over lunch about what poets we both liked, and I couldn't bring up the names of some of the poets. And and so that's a sadness, you know, to lose that capacity uh, to bring those up. And I, I was just thinking, you talk about actually you're going to do a Cancer Health Program alumni gathering and your session's going to be about self-compassion. And I imagine self-compassion is a good place to start with these losses. Absolutely. I mean, the the way we typically define loss, aging, illness, is almost like a defeat, like a failing on our part. Mm -hmm. And we feel ashamed or Mm -hmm. embarrassed or defective or flawed by the sheer act of being in this body. Mm -hmm. 
And I remember some of the times working with people in my practice, but also at the programs here, uh, the amount of self-blame that comes up. I, was, I did an interview uh, with a program called the Bread for the Journey the past couple weeks. And uh, she brought up this idea, which is prevalent in the culture, of you create your own reality. And she said, what does that do for people with cancer or illness? And frequently what it ends up doing is creating a condition of, of shame. Mm-hmm. You know, well, what was it about me that, you know, I brought this cancer on myself? And so I think one of the very important pieces that we practice religiously, to use that phrase, is self-compassion. How do you do that? Well, it's a very ancient practice, and it's... uh, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, In my teachings, I work with the idea of outcast brothers and outcast sisters, you know, parts of us that were deemed unworthy of participation in our life, you know. Um, you know, I had, as a boy, I had to get rid of my anger, my sexuality, my joy, uh, my exuberance. They didn't fit. So they were all, they became outcast brothers. So part of practicing self-compassion is uh, setting another place at the table, you know, welcoming them back as best I can. There's one brother of mine who goes on every walk I take into town. And I, in my lunch hour, I'll be, I'll be walking into town and I'll see him looking around to see if anybody's noticing him. Because <laughs> he was the youngest of eight kids. And no one in that family saw him. So there's this invisible boy. And so I, I'm walking down the street and I can feel him. Did she see me? Did they see me? And my self-compassion, I used to, you know, judge this part. I remember going to therapy for the express purpose of getting rid of all these parts of me. <laughs> if I could just get rid of these parts, then I'd be, you know, you know, I'd be tolerable in the world. So now when I feel him, I just turn to him and say, I see you. And I say, you know, everything that you're looking for, we already have. So come on, you can keep walking with me. You're welcome. Come be with me, you know. Sit down. So the practices of self-compassion usually are most difficult in those places that we judge as unworthy or unwelcomed. You know, when you start, you can't remember a name. What should our response be? And when you have a working life, I mean, you know, I have no intention of leaving the work as long as I can breathe and be useful, but but I haven't really given myself permission. I haven't talked to my work community. I literally haven't mm-hmm. talked to my work community mm-hmm. about, okay, I'm still useful, but there's more and more erosion going on here. And how can we consciously and compassionately work with that so that Michael in a diminished state is still welcome in the fullness of his diminishment? Uh, and, uh, and yet... And yet, he brings some new things to the table in embracing that loss. Precisely. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most key things yeah. about that. We, we, have a, um, we live in a very heroic culture. Mm-hmm. And the heroic image is the only one that we identify with as worthwhile. 
And so we're always succeeding, we're always climbing, we're always victorious, we're always going up. Mm-hmm. Diminishment, mm-hmm. limitation. Jung, when after Jung had his heart attack, he said he called it a process of, of defoliation. Mm-hmm. You know, just watching this shedding going on, you know, losing capacities. But when you, when you measure that against that heroic ideal, we feel less than, we feel defective. We try to hide our defects then. But if we can invite them into the room, oh my God, what permission that grants the entire circle mm-hmm. to acknowledge that we all have limps. We all have places of limitation. And it is collectively that we are able to hold up the whole piece. Mm-hmm. But individually, every time I lose something, it feels like now I have to suffer without that, rather than saying, I need help here. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like... If we can let go of the heroic image a little bit, we are given permission to ask for the thing that we most need, which then makes the community uh, what I call spiritually employed. Mm-hmm. They begin to be useful now in new ways when we are allowed and granted permission to say, I can't, or I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I don't. That brings me back to uh, the role of imagination. Um, you know that James Hillman wrote a really extraordinary book in his later years called The Force of Character in the Long Life, right. which is about loss and defoliation and so on. But one of the points he made is that even as we lose physical capacity, that the imagination expands. And he quotes that wonderful line from Yeats about, does it surprise you that lust and rage dance attendance on my old age? They did not trouble me thus when I was young, you know? So what are you supposed to do, you know, when you're supposed to be this kind of distinguished older person? And in fact, your imagination is just going bananas. I mean, you know, the libido declines. The imagination is going bananas. And people look at you like you're supposed to be wise or something. And in fact, you know, you're just living with all the archetypes, but without permission to say, guess what? The actual sphere in which I am living is one in which I have a clearer sense than ever of the power of archetypes in our life. Uh, And again, there is the shame of, you know, I should be this virtuous Buddha-like, compassionate old soul, none of which I actually am, you know. So it's a very interesting experience. There's a passage of Blake's. He, he wrote a letter to his brother, I think it was, after a long illness. And uh, he wrote to him saying, uh, I have come back from the gates of hell, from the gates of death, a tottering and feeble old man, mm-hmm. but not in the imagination, mm-hmm. not in the true man. Mm-hmm. There I am stronger than ever. That's right. You know? And, but it's in, the, it's in the courage to face it. Yes. And not to pretend to be some cardboard version of somebody's idea of, you know... I mean, Jung has this wonderful thing, sort of as a discoverer of the archetype of the wise old man. And yet he, he absolutely refused to accept that as an identification mm-hmm. for himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he was fully aware of all, all that the imagination brings. And this, of course, is 
the heart of Hillman's work with archetypal psychology is not to contribute to the dominion of the ego and its whole set of regulations about how things right. are supposed to be, but to enter into uh, the jungle of the archetypes as a witness and to regard all the incredible beasts and beings of the archetypal wilderness uh, uh, as a witness to them. Uh, as a, uh, uh, and, and to me, that is the experience of this period of time. Is I don't have to, just as the physical body is crumbling, so the ego dominion crumbles at this mm -hmm. period of life. Mm -hmm. And therefore, one is invited to what? Either to shame or despair or whatever, or to enter into this imaginative realm uh, as a witness uh, to the incredible power and vitality of this world that is presented to you uh, in a whole fresh way. Mm, beautifully said. Mm -hmm. I think the more we cling to that idealistic image of who I'm supposed to be, right. the harder it is to go into that with any grace mm -hmm. and any elegance. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jung talked about how towards the middle part of our life there is a reordination of what it is we are meant to attend to. The first half of our life is about developing this self, you know, and showing up for my work, for my family, for my creative life. But he said around 40 or so, the soul begins to exert its presence stronger and stronger. And so that's where we have to then create a willingness to almost subordinate my individual self-life and begin, as the Grail legend would say, you know, whom does the grail serve? The grail serves the grail king. So I have to now be in service to soul. And that means become, you say to be a witness, I would say to become an engaged participant with those mm. images. The That's Im better. The, That's Im better. the images themselves are, are very powerful. But if I don't engage them and in a sense bring them in through my body, through my own experience, then they, uh, they don't have a way of actually helping to translate into something effective in the world. I've had so many images in my lifetime that helped to uh, reconcile what seemed to be irreconcilable places in my psyche. Conflicts that I could not find my way through with my mind, no matter how many years of therapy, they would not heal. But the image created the bridge. You know, The image is what helped to give me a place of reconciliation. And, yes, that the power of the imagination, beauty, imagination, and the life of the soul, the, the title we gave this conversation, um, I think so many of us really don't live in full awareness of what the imagination is in our lives. Well, it's been trivialized. Yeah. We say, well, it was just in your imagination. Right. We don't realize that imagination is not something I do. It is something that happens to me. We are imagined. It's like going to bed at night and uh, I'm not in charge of this dream. Mm -hmm. The dream happens. I'm just a character in the dream. Usually not the most interesting one. You know, I'm, just, I'm, I'm in the dream, but I'm not shaping it. I'm not making it happen. And I think it was Keats who said the best thing is to be in the dream awake. In other words, dreaming is happening constantly. 
So Jung said that the, the primary activity of psyche is image making. So like right now, images are flooding us. We don't see them as much because the eye is awake. It's just like the stars are up there right now. But we don't see them because the sun is awake. The sun is out. But still, imaging is happening. And if we could begin to pay attention to those images as they happen, we would recognize a rich, dynamic, vital life is happening all the time. And out of that, we could be informed by something much larger than my own history. That's part of the, the limitation of psychology is it is so focused on history and not on revelation. You know, that the images themselves keep revealing themselves to us in astonishing ways that, again, my mind could not make up. Where do you think the images come from? Soul. Right, but given the reality of uh, what Jung called archetypes, um, of, of images that appear in all cultures mm -hmm. uh, and across very different people, um, what is your understanding um, of something that probably can never really be answered, of the the nature of those archetypes. How do they function? Um, so, for example, Jung struggled with the question of whether these were sort of genetically given projections of the individual psyche. They were collective, but he struggled with the question of whether they he knew they had independent vitality psychologically, that they were centers of vitality that he could not control. But he struggled with the question of whether they had a real existence uh, separate from being projections of all our collective. What is your sense of the reality of the images? Well, he also talked about the uh, objective reality of the psyche. Right. And, and for me, if you asked any indigenous person, right. uh, these things are unquestionably real. Right. And have an autonomous existence far beyond me. Uh, so when I encounter an image, an archetypal image, I'm encountering something quite substantial. So, but real. in addition to the indigenous sense of that, is that also your actual it sense? Is, yeah. It is. Okay. Yeah. And so, speaking from your own sense of that, uh, what do you have an image of the universe in which these images live and are real and function? I mean, can you locate it, or how do you describe where they reside as in that sense? I think it's near Pittsburgh, but I'm not sure. <laughs> um. <clears throat> it's one of those uh, parallel realities, isn't it? I mean, uh, when we're in a dream, rarely do we question the reality of the space we're in. It is tangible, it is felt, it is visceral. We, we can touch things, we smell things, we see things. We don't doubt its reality. It's only somehow when we come back to this reality that we wonder, oh, it was just a dream. But I think what, I, what my experience tells me is that that reality is as real as this one. In Aboriginal culture, they would call that the dream time. And 
the old thought is that if we do not tend the dreaming, this world corrodes. If we forget to tend to the life of the dream, then this one begins to decay. And we, we're seeing that quite rapidly, aren't we? We have left the imagination, we've left the dreaming, uh, and now live in a very functional, very uh, product-oriented, very efficiency-oriented world, bottom-line world. But the world of dream, the world of imagination, has basically been forgotten, trivialized. And consequently, we're watching this parallel corrosion in all of the things that were meant to be kept alive and vital by the dream time. That's why those stone paintings were kept vital and, and vigorous for you know, possibly over 100,000 years. You know, that, that was their job, that was their spiritual obligation, was to keep the dreaming fed so that their world, the green world, the actual world of body and plant and animal, kept teeming, kept alive, kept vital, kept verdant by tending the dreams. So that's to them, to me, that is a very real thing. You know, and whether or not we can prove it, we can watch the evidence of it now. Well, phenomenologically, we can demonstrate it. We can it. demonstrate it. So we, we know phenomenologically it's real. Yeah. The question I was asking was about what your epistemology of that is, and it's an unanswerable question. I've just been reading Robert Graves' beautiful uh, book on Greek mythology, and one of the things that stands out is that for every myth he discusses, there are five, seven, ten variants on the myth. And, um, and, and Hillman makes the same point, that when you talk about myths, that there are all these variants. So it seems like phenomenologically one of the realities of the dream world is that the images do not come in a simple, single crisp form. They morph endlessly in different... So that must be a, a quality of that independent existence is that it doesn't, the images don't have a single form. They, they're quite fluid. Yes. That's my sense, too. Mm -hmm. They don't crystallize. They, mm -hmm. uh, they have their own epiphanies. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. why, you know, you look at various mythologies from around the world, their deities would appear in different forms mm -hmm. because I think the earth dreams differently mm -hmm. in different places. Mm -hmm. So the gods themselves, the goddesses themselves, reflect the actual penetration to the substance of the planet in that place. I mean, we've done rituals uh, up and down the whole coast of the continent, and the same ritual done in different places result, uh, calls out different images, different responses, because the earth is dreaming there. So this again ties us back in. Our psyche is not inside of us. We live inside a psyche. And if psyche is... Uh, the old alchemical phrase was, the greater part of the soul lies outside the body. In other words, my soul is simultaneously engaged in the substrata of this foundation, of this earth, right? So I'm not only just dreaming, I'm also receiving, I'm a receptor site for the revelation of this particular place as it's dreaming itself here, now, in this body, in this place. So the Germanic dream might be very different than a dream from South America or from the Polynesian islands. The gods and goddesses, the archetypes reflect the place as well as the psyches that are there. 
though seeing ourselves as receiving and transmitter stations where depending on our tuning these archetypes flow through us and flow back out in different form. And meant to inform a greater and more sacred relationship to the surrounding field that we're participating in. Mm. And as you say, one of the things you brought to this as a soul activist is the sense that, unlike Hillman, who just enters the, the forest of the archetypes as a witness, although he talked about more than that, but at least he used that metaphor, but you're really quite insistent on the importance of engagement, which may be engagement not only internally and psychologically, but active engagement in responding to the wound of the earth or the wound of the self in ways that move the reality. If we think about it as uh, this, this prolonged call and response between the archetype and the human, mm. if the call and response is, is disrupted, as I think it has been in many, many ways, mm. I have seen, in, in, in the only way I can speculate, but I have seen archetypes mutate into their distorted presence. Mm. A distorted presence. I'll give you an example. We work with a, an idea in, in what I've seen countless times in people is an energy we call the predator. Now the predator uh, is an energetic force in the psyche, an archetype, that in mythology shows up as the giant, the troll, the dragon, the demon. It is a non-human presence that's meant to stand between you over here and where you need to get to. In other words, it's, a, it's an initiatory threshold from adolescent to adulthood, roughly speaking. This was an ancient call and response that every culture tended to. We have stopped responding to this call and response. What happens? My guess is that that gatekeeper now has mutated into a predator. Into this 60-foot presence in our life that says, who the hell do you think you are? Mm -hmm. How many of you have heard that voice in your lifetime? <laughs> to take up breathing space, to have an idea, to try something. You're nobody. So speaking of that, because you take up breathing space, you have nobody. One of the things that I've seen so often in the Cancer Help program, and also just with friends, is a childhood experience where someone received what Rachel Remen calls a don't live message. That very often it's the mother, let's just take the mother as an example, who fundamentally uh, says to the infant, to the child, don't live, you're worthless, whatever it is. Some deeply hurtful message. And that manifests in later life very often as illness or some other experience. How do you, when you meet that, and I know you do, what is the path to healing when there has been that disruption of the primary relationship between mother and daughter or mother and son or whatever? How, how can someone work with that? Hmm. Jung once said that uh, it's impossible to live without a story. The only question worth asking, is it a healing fiction? 
And frequently the stories we're living are not healing fictions, they're debilitating fictions. So the work I do with people in my practice, but also in the ritual work, is to try to begin to compassionately allow another story to emerge. Jung also says something incredibly important, which is you cannot heal what you cannot separate from. It's almost like an alchemical formula. That as long as the story of that wounded child is overlapping and engaged with the life of my adult life, he or she has first response to the world. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? Yes. In other words, whatever comes my way, criticism, judgment, um, rejection, the child is the first one to step in and interpret the significance of that event. So part of what Jung is saying is that we have to be able to separate from that in order for the adult to be able to step into the foreground of the life and be the one actually engaging directly with the slings and arrows. So how do you separate from that? I usually do it through a very uh, patient process of writing. That I ask, I ask the people I work with to write out the worldview of this child. Hmm of this complex, is what he called them. And inside the complex, he said that, that the complex operates completely autonomously to my life. And a complex is generated through an encounter with an emotional field too large for me to process. That's what now we talk about as PTSD, right? I mean, that's, that's what happens with many of the people coming back from war or rape or uh, any type of trauma. The emotional field is too big for the psyche to process. And so the psyche creates these little pockets of... A, of, of a, called complexes. Called complexes. And it's behind an the complexes thing. are archetypes very often. Yes. But it's an amazing thing that the psyche can do that. that. In a sense, what it wants to do is not lose any part of our experience, but it knows that the experience I just encountered was too large to encounter. So we have to titrate that. He said there's three steps to helping to resolve this. The first step is separation, the second is discharge, and the third is integration. So in a sense, what we're asked to do is, in the separation process, is to begin to refine the characteristics of that story that this part of us is living out. For instance, they have this, this, these, uh, these complexes have basic assumptions about life. It's not safe. I am not welcome. Out of those assumptions come expectations. Well, if I try to reach out, I'll just be rebuffed, so I better not. Out of, those strat- out of that comes a whole field of strategies of how I'm going to cope with this world that did not welcome me. So I'll, I'll, for me, I became a perfect boy. I had no needs, no anger. I was nice all the time. So I had a strategic move that I made to somehow fit in a world that the boy had already interpreted as unwelcoming. And out of that, I had to also look, so what is it in my world that would trigger that part of me to be responding to the world? You know, so anytime I saw uh, an angry face on a woman, I immediately became a five-year-old boy, no matter what was going on in my world. So it becomes these kind of gripping experiences of possession. You can call them a state of possession. We can be going along just fine, walking down the street, and we encounter something critical or judgmental, and suddenly we become somebody completely different. 
I know. So these complexes, which take all this energy that the psyche cannot absorb and hold them as an autonomous space, and as you say, there are these three steps to dealing with this uh, separation, expression, discharge, discharge, and then integration. And I quoted the line, I can't remember from whom, that uh, behind every complex is an archetype. So let's carry that thought. Um, How does one work with the with developing an awareness of what the archetype behind the complex is and how does that come into deep healing work when we are simply relating to the complex we have personalized the story right this is my story right i was rejected right i was abandoned i was not welcomed right when we begin to, that's the part of our difficulty with having a uh, privatized psychology, is that we don't think mythically. So the archetypes are no longer there. I remember working with a man one time who had a very deep uh, abandonment wound. And when I began to ask him to experiment with the, the possibility that he was participating in a grand story, that abandonment is a huge mythic theme in many stories. Come back and tell me some stories of abandonment. Now go, go do some research in the mythology of abandonment. Oh my God, Moses was abandoned. Did you know that? You know, and, 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 and Osiris and you know, all of these fantastic stories. You know, the worst person to interpret our experience is the one who was wounded. You know, that's the worst person to be doing the interpreting of our story, is the one who was wounded. So we need a grander vista. That's where the archetype comes in. That's where mythology comes in, to flesh out the larger backdrop. Now, rather than... See, part of what happens when I personalize the wound, my wound becomes a place of exceptionalism. I, am no, I cannot participate or belong because I carry this wound. When you think mythically, ah, I am a participant now in the grand stream of life because of this wound. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Does that make sense? It completely turns the, 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 the frame of reference. And this is the core of what Hillman worked on in archetypal psychology, yes. yeah. was reintroducing the archetypes behind the complexes yes. so that the complexes were no longer simply personalized traumas but right. could be seen against the backdrop yes. of these great yes. archetypal yes. structures. And then we get to read how did they encounter that? What did they do about that? You know, that's, the, that's the beauty of fairy tale. Even fairy tale, which are the kind of localized mythologies. They're provincial mythologies, basically. They don't name the gods in the stories, but they're still there. So then we get to learn about resiliency and cleverness and allies and the whole thing begins to flesh out into something much grander than my own particular story of woundedness, which then again becomes an exceptionalism that means I cannot participate. I have been scarred, I have been flawed, and I'm out. So having done all this work with yourself over all this time, as well as this work with other people, um, uh, where do you, you're 57 now, you said? Yes. Uh, Where do you find yourself at this point in your life in terms of your 
pilgrim journey. Um, what are the questions that you see before you that you are exploring now as you move into this very generative period of your own life? Hmm. I have to give that some thought. All right. I think what I'm primarily working with is how to consistently uh, lean into the world. Because I was very big on uh, leaning on my heels. I did not. I observed for the first forty years of my mm-hmm. life. So I've been in this world for about 17 years. Um, And trusting that there is something that consistently lends me a hand from unexpected places. And it has nothing to do with my worthiness of receiving that assistance. So for somebody who lived the majority of my life with tremendous feelings of worthlessness and shame, to now be in a position where I feel a kindness in the world, uh, that mystery world, I don't know what to name it, but I'm feeling very well held, and doors keep opening now. It's as if my hesitancy in the first half of my life has been replaced by a, a kind of a careless yes, um, and that yes has had implications and it's been responded to quite magnificently um, but I don't know how else to answer that question that's a beautiful start so I will sit with doors? that what kind of doors um, invitations from places I didn't even know existed uh, to come and teach, to talk, to share. Um, I remember when I, in, in the late 80s, I was asked to give a talk on shame. And I, I, I agreed to do it, but I thought this is, this is kind of a fruitless effort because no one's going to show up because <laughs> I'm the only guy who's got this wound. And I said, well, I said, okay, maybe, maybe 10 people will show up, you know. Well, the first night there was 65, and the next night there was 110. And, mm-hmm. and I gave this series of talks every year, four times a year, for about five years. Mm-hmm. And so invitations begin to show up as ways to bring medicine into the world in a place where I didn't know I had medicine or gifts or something to offer. So last week I was uh, in the middle of dinner with, with Judith and the phone rings. and uh, It's my dear friend Doug Von Koss calling me and saying, what are you doing on the 9th, Francis? I says, I don't know, Doug. What should I be doing on the 9th? <laughs> well, you're getting on a plane from Minnesota. Mm-hmm. We need you at the Minnesota Men's Conference. Mm-hmm. So those kind of things start to happen. And, Unexpected gifts, unexpected invitations. In addition to your depth immersion in archetypal psychology, you've also worked with a, a great African healer. Could you say a word about that? Yeah, in the uh, mid-90s, I uh, had the great fortune of 
studying with initially uh, an African teacher by the name of Maladoma Somme. And uh, if you haven't heard of him, uh, I highly recommend his, his books. Uh, he was in Belinus. Was he? Just recently? Like a decade ago. A decade ago. Something like that. Yeah. He had a huge gathering. Yeah. Communities. Yeah. He's, he's a, an amazing human being, one of the most brilliant uh, thinkers I've ever met. He gave you a name. Yes. Uh, uh, Nitoyona. Meaning? He who sets straight the bone. Mm. Yeah. And what did, you, what did you receive from Maladoma Sameh? Well, it was like a, uh, an initiation into another layer of healing that I didn't know existed. Mm. Uh, to really grasp the indigenous wisdom that is here on this planet for how to suture the major tears in our cultural wounds was astonishing. Um, just even to learn the, the whole technology of, of ritual and how that works and what that does to the psyche and to the region of psyche that that speaks to was an amazing gift. And then he and I got to teach together for about five years mm. where we got to play with this amalgam between Western poetic, psychological and spiritual traditions and his indigenous wisdom. And it created some amazingly... Uh, healing tonics for what we were dealing with in these, in these circles of people. So in addition to Hillman and archetypal psychology and Maladoma Somme, what are the other great sort of rivers that have converged for you that have brought your own work in the world together? Well, I think the poetic tradition is a, mm. a major source of inspiration. Mm. I read more pop, much more poetry than I read psychology mm. these days. Right. I, mean, I think that the poets are the psychologists. If we take that word literally, which means the study of soul, right. that's what psychology means, the logos of soul, uh, they are much closer to an articulation of what is moving in the psyche of our culture than the psychologists are. And who are the poets that you most read? Uh, William Stafford, uh, David White, Mary Oliver, uh, Rilke, mm -hmm. Uh, Antonio Machado. Mm. Um, I mean, we just we should actually just pause for a second and say goodbye to Seamus Haney, who died this week. Uh, mm. A brilliant, brilliant poet. And does a poem come to you that you could share with us? I'll do a, a Pablo Neruda because it ties back into our theme of mm. beauty and imagination. He said, and something ignited in my soul, fever or unremembered wings, and I went my own way deciphering that burning fire. And I wrote the first bare line, bare, pure foolishness, pure wisdom of one who knows nothing. And suddenly I saw the heavens unfastened and open. Mm. I'd like to open it for questions and thoughts. I ask you two things to say your name and to be brief so that we can hear from as many people as possible. So anybody want to start?
Yes. My name's Sean, and I'm just curious how you um, ran into Maladoma Sumay. How, how did that come together? He was offering a year-long training in uh, Ritual Village with his then-wife, Sabonfu Sumay. And that was a year long in 1995 to 96. And it was in Oakland. Yeah. And I went down and joined that. And, uh, and after that, we began striking up a good friendship and deciding to work together. Yeah. He yes. now lives in Florida. Yes. Uh, my name's Deborah. And um, I wanted to ask you, um, this kind of uh, piggybacks a little bit on what Michael is saying in terms of the losses, you know, when it starts experiencing as they age, and um, with so many of us coming into this generation, and I work with elders, and um, what I have noticed in my own work is a total lack of any ritual at all that recognizes that we're going into a new stage in life. And it is a stage of lot of more fun of losses that we recognize as painful because of the loss of health, the loss of cognitive things, the loss of all your friend, many friends. And um, I was wondering if you know of cultural or ancestral, in historical terms, what did those cultures do? Is what what's a healthy way that maybe we can begin to initiate and hold things to help. I mean, I, I want to kind of help my own, the elders that I work with, but also the baby boomers that are going to be coming into this age. And there's just so much depression and, and, and loneliness. And, you know, how do I live? What's my life about? And I just would love to hear mm -hmm. if you have some knowledge from what you've studied of maybe the ancient ways that people would deal with this. Good question. Uh, I think what many traditions would do would be to uh, certainly bring them into the role of elder, formally. Mm -hmm. For instance, in Maladoma's village, when he was initiated as an elder, uh, they covered him in ash. And uh, basically he had to sit in the town square, in the, in the village square, and anybody could come up to him and insult them all day long. <laughs> and his job as an elder was to begin to say, my job is no longer to serve myself, but to serve the village. And it was also a process of stripping away. The ash was a, was a signification of, uh, of letting go, of uh, honoring the fact that this is temporary. And once you've initiated into elderhood, in a sense, what you're also being initiated into is preparation for ancestry. That the work is never done. In this culture, as you leave the workforce, you you're become not. worthless. You know? Uh, rather than saying you've entered a new form of employment. So we need to have rituals that bring them into this new territory. I remember we had Maladoma come and speak once in uh, Sonoma County. And he says, you know, you people look to me as if I have the rituals for you. Uh, you know, like, I'll have a handbook that's on page 242, uh, do such and such a ritual. He said, but you have to remember, you are page 242. You know what you need to do. Get creative. Let's begin to dream these up. Anytime, be willing to experiment and fail. 
We've done many rituals that did not work. But we've done many rituals that have become now kind of uh, the core of our ritual life over the course of the year. So I would put the question back to you. What do you sense, again, not to answer for right now, but to, to dream on and to ask this earth, how are we going to do this? We need to dream new rituals, new practices, so that we're not putting people away. It's like we've created this whole reservation system for elderly people. Um, rather than, rather than uh, new forms of engagement and participation, huh? So we need to actually ritually acknowledge that that transition has occurred and give them new roles and new responsibilities. Yeah. Other questions? Wonderful question. Yeah, it was a great question. Yeah, we're good? Oh, good. Um, one that sort of piggybacks on what Michael asked at the beginning. Um, what can we do in our daily life to deal with the grief of the oppression of what's happening to the planet? And then you were saying, break the taboo, call up and say, I want to talk about sorrow. Um, my experience with that is that it leaves me feeling worse. And so... I'm wondering um, if you have a particular, you know, format or ritual that you do, if you do that in a way that could, that at the end of having done that, I won't feel worse and more weighted down and more angry and more depressed. Well, I think it does have to go beyond just conversation. I mean, we do need to be able to set it down periodically. I mean, if we were a really healthy culture, we would have grief rituals every month. And that we would, you know, be able to offer this as a way of not asking you to, you know, pack a U-Haul full of grief and drag it around with you. But to actually be able to set it down every month. In the village in Africa, there was a grief ritual probably almost every single day someplace going on. And I remember asking one woman there, I said, you, you, I said to her, you have so much joy. And her response was, that's because I cry a lot. You know? So given that permission to really set it down, uh, that's really what we're needing. And by setting it down, you mean releasing it? Yes. Yeah. Sometimes what we end up doing is what I call um, recycling. Also crying instead of just talking. Yes. Yeah. I mean, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I know about Somme's work mm -hmm. and so on. In this whole time, you've never mentioned aloneness. You're right. We haven't. Yeah, but there's so much. It's my thing. Yeah. It, it's given to me. I aloneness really is your issue. Let's 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 hear Francis's thought on. That. I think it's a great question. And well, that's really just a. Kind no, but of but in, embedded in your observation is a truly great question, which is. Yeah. The, the frequent experience of so many people, particularly as we get older, of aloneness. Because it is so common. I mean, Mother Teresa talked about loneliness as the, you know, as the, the, the condition of the West, the poverty of the West. Mother Teresa said that loneliness is... And of course, there's a difference between aloneness and loneliness. But this, this set of issues of loneliness, aloneness, what are your reflections on it? Or we're a very extroverted culture, and uh, so the, the 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 norm or the expectation is for constant association. Yeah. 
And when we're not in constant association, we think that something is wrong with us. And there are those, I mean, I'm a strong introvert and I need my solitude. Um, and so it's that tension between um, what I call the twining trail. I just wrote a piece on this. Between the development of my sovereignty, my deep internal life, my connection to my soul, uh, the full expression of the particularity that I am. And then the other part of the trail is the communal trail, the participatory trail, and that these two consistently weave in and out of our lifetime. It sounds like you are really in tune with what your journey is, with what your particular path is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what your story is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only caution would be to not have the aloneness become a commentary about, you know, am I okay? Am I all right? Am I good enough? I don't know what your story yeah, is. I agree. No, yeah. that as long as you can get curiosity and, and compassion in there, then it can be a rich solitude. I mean, the idea of being alone is not, uh, not new. I mean, that's, been, that, that's a, an ancient path for many people. So maybe we can talk some more. There's a question. Yeah, let's take a last question here. Yeah. I'm Ramona. I work as a nurse, and I um, I observe grief uh, in its a really raw form. I, I work as a pediatric nurse in an ICU, and some of the some of the deaths mm-hmm. are, are you know things are tragedies, and we're never trained as caregivers how to observe grief. And mm-hmm. I also work in pediatric palliative care where we're allowed death to happen instead of intervening. Yes. And um, it's so difficult because um, some people say, oh, I could never do that. But what's really difficult is when you're not allowed to grieve with the family. We have this social construct mm-hmm. where the caregiver is not allowed to, almost like we're in a bubble in the room. Like We're actually, in many cases, there holding the child or encouraging the family to hold the child. But we're not trained to grieve or even observe grief or interact with it. And um, I found myself fighting tears because you're not allowed to cry. You're you're supposed to be the strong one. Or on the other side of that, I have found myself um, distancing from it so much that (coughs) I often, and among my colleagues as nurses, we will refer to someone like, oh, remember Bed 5, I can't remember his name. And then we'll go through the whole uh, series of events, but it's our way of, and I always say, maybe it's our way of like protecting <coughs> ourselves because it makes that grief, I don't know, in some ways, one step, we're, we're looking at it like a story. Mm-hmm. But I, I'd love to, I know this isn't the topic of this, but how do caregivers and providers train ourselves or become trained to experience grief in a healthy way and also allow grief to happen around us because it's become so uncomfortable and a lot of people are so uncomfortable with grief um, a very close emotion is anger and frustration mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it can be very dangerous in the yeah. environment especially yeah. when children are involved Excuse me, we're going to have to wrap up the question. And before Francis responds, I want to say that Francis's book, Entering the Healing Ground, Grief, Ritual, and the Soul of the World, is a wonderful, wonderful handbook and response to your question. And I'm then going to give Francis the opportunity to respond as he chooses. Uh, 
you know, your your dilemma is repeated everywhere I go. Um, mm -hmm. Caregivers are somehow deprived the opportunity to be cared for. Uh, I mean, I we have a lot of hospice people you know, coming to our rituals now, and people who are being asked to be on either end of that of that story, you know, of illness, death. Um, we gather a lot of grief. And if we don't set it down, I think regularly, our capacity to open our hearts begins to be diminished. You know, then it becomes perfunctory. We've all gone towards, you know, to hospitals or doctors where it's become perfunctory because they were not allowed. I have a lot of doctors and nurses in my practice too. You know, um, because they, they get in this message of the heroic be in control, don't show the vulnerability, be the strong one for them. Uh, and it does tremendous damage. I mean, I'm so glad you brought this up. I, I, I gave a talk once to a group of uh, Episcopal priests, you know, not quite as many as in here, but I was in five minutes into the story and I could just see my talk and I could just see the eyes just watering. And watering. So I just stopped the talk and said, okay, what's in the room? And we went around and people just named. Well, my divorce was final two months ago. My, my wife died in, in April. Uh, my, my son has just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And then I asked them, how many of you have a place to take your grief? No one raised their hand. Mm -hmm. And these are the ones who are supposed to be the, the caretakers of the congregations. And, and the same with you. You have to be the caretaker of these people. And unless we have places to take this grief, it will toxify. It will poison us. Grief is never... I mean, every traditional culture I've studied says grief is a toxic. And we have to discharge it regularly. Otherwise it will poison us. Yeah. Francis, let me, let me close with one final question. It's very interesting to me that when people gather to grieve, there is a comfort if they're grieving with people with what they perceive to be a like wound, like a group of people with cancer, or a group of people who have just lost a loved one or something like that, is there something in the nature of grieving work that it actually works better if people are dealing with what they perceive to be a common wound? Or is that actually a fiction, and can one do just as well with asking people as in the Mary Oliver's poem, you know, tell me about your grief, you know, I'll tell you about mine. Uh, is that a fiction or is that a, a is that a, a fiction that one sh that is helpful to go beyond or is that an actuality that we should accept as how the work often works best? I think it, it's a reflection of, of how far our imaginations have gone into grief. Uh-huh we typically only recognize that first gate of grief, right. which is the loss of someone that we love or our own slow demise through right. illness. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, we don't recognize the other four gates of grief. Why don't you speak of them all briefly, just so that we have that sense in the room? Yeah, the first gate is uh, the loss of someone or something that we love. The second gate is uh, the grief that arrives from those parts of us 
that have rarely, if ever, known love. Those outcast brothers and sisters I was talking about. The third gate is the sorrows of the world. The fourth gate is um, the grief associated with what you expected when you arrived here and did not get. We were wired and, and designed for a village participatory life and almost none of us got it. And consequently there's this aching sorrow in us. And the last gate is uh, ancestral grief. What we've inherited over the long story of our, our species. Francis Weller, author of Entering the Healing Ground, Grief Ritual and the Soul of the World. Thank you for being with us at the New School. A great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.